ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, the place where I invite you to pull up a chair while I have conversations with thinkers and leaders, where we look for what Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. And I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long. Uh, Marilyn Robinson is with us today. And most of you know Marilyn Robinson. She is the author of uh, the Gilead books, Gilead Home and Lila, that, that I talked about on Reading in Exile, um, and quote just about every every week. Uh, and she's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, of the Hemingway uh, Award, many, many awards, including the National Humanities Medal uh, awarded by President Obama. And she has written some of my favorite books in the world, both collections of essays and her novels. And this year, she has a new book in the Gilead series, Jack. And I noted in my list of the best books of uh, 2020, until and unless Marilyn Robinson writes a textbook on trigonometry or a manifesto on the artistic inferiority of Johnny Cash, I'm going to read everything she writes. And I have been waiting for this novel for some time. Uh, These books can't be described as sequels or prequels. Uh, because of the way that they move in time, uh, the, the first three around Gilead, Iowa, and this one off from there in St. Louis and various other places, uh, following the character Jack and his uh, marriage to an African-American woman in a time when that was not just uh, not just socially unacceptable, but illegal. And I say in the in the little review, reading this book, You will find yourself bound up in the stories and in the characters' spoken and unspoken internal dialogues, but you will end up realizing that you have been meditating on such big themes as love, fidelity, regret, and as always in Marilyn Robinson, a theology of creation, fall, redemption, meaning, and grace. Marilyn Robinson, thanks so much for being with us today on Signposts. It's a pleasure to be here, as it were. Virtually. (laughs) I think I have told you this before, but uh, Wendell Berry, in a conversation once, uh, I was telling him how much his his books had meant to me, and he said, well, 
isn't it something how just the right conversation comes along at just the right time and just the right book comes along at just the right time? And I think about that constantly, and especially when I'm reading and rereading your works. Uh, your book, Gilead, I read at what had to be the, the darkest time of my life, and, uh, and I, I found grace uh, throughout it. And this book, Jack, which I've read twice uh, now since it came out, is an extraordinary work. And I wasn't sure that, that you could pull it off because it's a very, very different uh, sort of ecosystem in which you're working than uh, Gilead, Iowa. Did you have some, some reservations about whether or not you could inhabit this very different context as you were writing it? Well, yeah, I mean, starting um, any novel is always sort of, um, you know, anxiety producing, you know, whether you will be able to sustain what you have set in motion. But the thing that I've always feared more than anything else is repeating myself. And the fact that Jack gave me the opportunity to use a very different voice was actually reassuring to me in a way, because I... Well, simply, if you begin imitating your own style or whatever, you know, then that's the end of things as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, I expected uh, the the central metaphor in my mind as I read the book to be the prodigal son. And I was, I was wrong, I think. Uh, as, as I was reading it, I said to myself, I think that maybe one of the central metaphors here is Genesis 2 and 3 with the uh, language of starting the world all over again and uh, the imagery of exile, the, the, the metaphor of clothes uh, that, that is so often uh, there and shame, uh, a garden and a graveyard and, and so forth. And as I was thinking about that, I just happened to look back at something that you wrote um, in one of your essays in The Death of Adam the truth to which all this fiction refers, from which it takes its authority, is the very oldest truth right out of Genesis. We are not at ease in the world, and sooner or later it kills us. And honestly, I think one of the places where that shows up the most in this book is when you talk about awkwardness, I suppose is the way to put it, where Jack says, I, I think some people seem to be born knowing what to do. And he doesn't in this situation or in many situations. I think that that resonates with many people who feel this sort of unease uh, in the world or what some people call imposter uh, syndrome. And maybe maybe that's heightened uh, right now in this time of disconnection from one another. Yes, I think that's, I think that you're probably right about that, that the whole system, this whole intricate uh, web of obligations and so on that we have lived in suddenly is so disrupted. I think lots of people weren't aware of the degree to which they were taking instruction from their situations about what they should do and what mattered and all the rest of it. And then suddenly, you know, in a way that truly I could not have really imagined happening, all kinds of wires fell down, you know, all kinds of, of assumptions uh, simply cease to connect with reality. And I'm sure it's, I mean, one of the things that Americans are very inclined to do is uh, define themselves by their work or their occupation. And for mm. many people, that sort of self-definition is in doubt at the very least. 
and and even apart from the times that we're living in of pandemic and so forth, very few people are going to be working as Reverend Ames did uh, in, in one place for an extended period of time. Uh, most people have this sense of uncertainty and mobility as to where they're going to go. More like Jack, actually, moving from job to job and place to place. That, I think, is dizzying and disorienting to many people who think, I, I just don't seem to be living the way that my parents did. I think that, yes, indeed. I think also that there are certain people who simply see things as being complex that to other people seem simple or negligible, you know. I think that, you know, my character, here I am talking about him as if he were not my creation, but um, he sees the workings of the world as complex and mysterious, you know. How does the city, St. Louis, regenerate itself day after day, you know, in, in this self-similar way, which is really a philosophic question about reality as a whole, you know. Mm. It, it's, I think that it would be true for most of us that if we had stopped and thought about how tenuous and arbitrary and so much, so much of our existence actually is, that we might fall into a, a muse as, as uh, fraught as, as Jax is. And he says at one point, uh, something along the lines of, I'm a simple man raised by a complicated man. Or, or maybe it's the reverse. I, I think it's a simple man raised by a, a complicated man. I was struck by uh, Jack's father's presence, not explicitly, but in the background uh, throughout this book, and also struck by the way that you paint a picture of shame, uh, the sense of Jack's a, a naked man inside his clothes uh, comes up uh, several times, that there's something wrong with him, uh, kind of an original sin in his, in his origin story. One of the most popular YouTube videos uh, of all time is Brene Brown talking about shame. It, it seems that we live in a time where many people are grappling with shame, but they don't know how to. How should we think about that in a post-Christian sort of world that we're living in right now? I don't really accept the idea, frankly, that the world is post-Christian. Insofar as Christianity is, in effect, a true statement about the nature of reality, I don't think that we can put it down, close it like a book, and walk away from it. One of the my interests in writing Jack was that I see so often uh, people who have the, the sort of relics of... Uh, metaphysical understanding of the world, but it hasn't been given to them in a way that makes it coherent, uh, that mm. makes them at ease calling it by a name like Christianity, which which implies uh, that all sorts of things would fall into place, all sorts of assumptions would be invested in it. I talk about this quite a bit with people who talk about nuns and so on, N-O-N-E-S, because uh, I teach writers, and writers tend to be very self-divulging at some, some level. And there's the old ancient human predisposition toward, you know, a, sen a sense of a transcending reality and so on that is not addressed and is not institutionalized now, that has lost a great deal of its poetry and a great deal of its dignity. I mean, the fact that people can't identify with religion as they see it does not mean that they do not have the full set of impulses that make human beings religious. 
but maybe lack a vocabulary. Uh, one of the striking things is the way that Jack is is quoting the King James Version, uh, constant little allusions <laughs> throughout because of somebody who has that context uh, in a way that's just decreasingly the default case for many people. They don't, they don't have words to put to some of these ideas. I think it's partly because, I mean, I do, th- you know, the religious institutions have to be responsible for this in very great part. And I think that there's been a period during which they have backed away from the power of language. I mean, the power in the sense of its capacity for actually regenerating itself as meaning in other minds, not as a form of manipulation, but a form of participation in the religious life of of the culture, giving that to them in a way that they can internalize it because it's meaningful and beautiful and, and theirs by right, you know? I think that often you see situations where people, either either the religious institutions become kind of clubs that they hope people will wander into because we're all so lonely, <laughs> or mm-hmm. they see them as a way of disciplining people, uh, in effect, frightening them. And neither of these things is attractive to a an open mind that wants a meaningful vision of religion. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Russell Moore. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and Sirens go off and they're and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. 
You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You and I have talked before about Calvin and Edwards and and others, and this is a deeply theological novel, as many of your uh, writings are. I noticed that the Guardian newspaper called it a Calvinist romance, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, but here's here's the thing, and tell me if I'm wrong. One of the most Calvinist things about your novels, and maybe this novel particularly, is that there are no villains. And by that, I mean that there's a a real sense of total depravity, which is not that everyone is as depraved as he or she can be, but that, that there's a sense of createdness and goodness and fallenness in everyone so that I could find myself genuinely sympathizing with every character in this book, even when the character was making decisions that I that I could see was was wrong. I mean, do you think that there is a a connection between sort of your your influence by John Calvin and and Edwards and others with just the sympathy with which we can see one another and 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 as in this book? Well, I certainly hope so. One of the things that I used to struggle with as a teacher of writers was the idea that that evil or bad characters were more interesting than good ones, you know. But I think that most people, very few exceptions, have a, some sort of sense of equilibrium that is a sense of trying to keep them, the, their own integrity, their own ability to claim some degree of goodness in their lives, you know. I think that that kind of self-protective, in the highest sense of the word, self-protective impulse uh, is a is a continuous dialogue that people have with circumstance, you know, what tempts them, what frightens them, and all the rest. Um, and that, from my point of view, is profoundly interesting. People in some sort of contest with their circumstance, you know, not simply, I mean, I just, in a way, I don't find evil. I find evil to be basically mental illness where I concede its existence. But it's not the it's not the important it's not the beautiful human struggle and depravity means of course warpedness you know it's what it means in calvin's french and in calvin's latin uh it doesn't mean decay or something hideous like that you know it's like uh, if you look at a piece of early glass you know you don't get a true image and the error in the image moves as you move the glass and all that they would call that depravé that's you know that's what he's talking about. Even in the sense of, it, it would be easy uh, to have a, the image of a pastor's son who's in some sort of rebellion against his father, and the father is this harsh, judgmental figure. But the reflections that Jack has of his father, I mean, I think of the uh, conversation about the debate over predestination uh, and, and foreknowledge as related to predestination. And Jack says that his father couldn't answer those questions, and he would always have tears in his eyes. Just this, just this marvelous understanding of someone who deeply loves God and who deeply loves his son in a way that just makes this narrative and makes the reality of life so much more complex and mysterious in the right way. Jack adores his father, of course. Do, do you think that um, in talking about predestination and talking about grace, 
do you think that I noticed at one point Jack was worried about being boiled down to absolute Jack. And um, it, it caused me to think about something you wrote in Gilead where you said, the idea of grace had been so much on my mind, grace as a sort of ecstatic fire that takes things down to essentials. Is it, am I reading this right, that Jack is probably afraid of grace, that what he's experiencing in many ways is grace, not judgment, but it seems scary and disorienting to him. Yes, I think that, um, you know, like like many people, Jack cannot believe that God is more forgiving of him than he is of himself. He doesn't, he, he by my lights, you know, he, he has developed a sense of himself as having the impulse toward harm that he truly mm-hmm. does not want to act on usually, and that this sense of himself as a person predisposed to guilty acts actually makes him more sort of morally rigorous than than people who have more confidence about their own, you know, merit or virtue or something. And it sensitizes him uh, to things, that this sort of anxiety about himself, what he might do, makes him enormously careful about what he in fact does. Well, and, and even at, at the near the end, where Jack and Della are both realizing that this is going to have implications for generations, and it's really gut-wrenching, the, the, the portrait that you, you draw of the uh, white supremacist sort of society uh, in which they're falling in love, uh, that tells them they shouldn't be uh, falling in love. And I was really struck by... Uh, Della's family that were holding to sort of a Marcus Garvey sort of separatism that came across very sympathetically uh, to me, even in their uh, even in their disapproval. And I was rereading this while Henry Louis Gates is writing his book on the Black Church, and PBS is is doing that. When you think about the sort of uh, racial context, racial justice and injustice context into which you were. Uh, writing this book. I I assume you wrote it before, of course, uh, all of the uh, events of last year. But you look around at Christianity, mainline Protestantism, your world is is largely lily white, affluent. Uh, Evangelical Protestantism, my world, is riven apart with all sorts of um, anyone who speaks up for racial justice is sometimes called a Marxist. Do you have any hope for the church as it relates to a multi-ethnic uh, reconciliation and, and witness for justice? Well, I do think that people who really are Christians in a sense that Jesus might recognize the word are strongly predisposed toward justice and generosity and open-mindedness. That That might be, by my lights, a sort of definition of the religion as it is acted out in the world. As far as the separation of churches, you know, I listen quite a bit to black gospel music. And the reason Mm -hmm. I do is because it's full of courage and it is full of grace and it is full of a kind of undashable hopefulness that people with that history, you know, when they can speak in those terms, the terms really matter, you know. I'm very struck by the uh, 
the the sense of God being basically, you know, immediate. I mean, an old word, but the uh, the sense of whatever happens being immediately in the hands of God. You know, not mm. theoretically. You know, I think that the historical accident of the, you know, the formation of the Black Church is something to be a, admired. And something that has, you know, you, you see all these people emerging now, you know, taking very important roles in politics and society. They are very articulate, and you know they're very articulate because they spent so many hours hearing a certain kind of sermon, you know. I think that on the one hand, I don't think we should take the separation of the churches as being a problem as far as reconciliation goes, so long as we have an adequate appreciation of all the churches. And I think that the black church at this point is something that we can increasingly see as a sort of a miracle uh, that has occurred in the middle of so much that seems, you know, to exclude the possibility of such a miracle. I have one more question for you because I found myself, I realized at some point in this book that I actually am asking the same question often of myself that that Jack is asking. And I I never had known to put words to this. But I, I would just ask you, what in your view is the difference between faith and presumption? (laughs) I think that's probably the most excruciatingly fine distinction that can possibly be made. You know, I'm very aware of that, you know, uh, I never knew ye passage, you know, where Mm -hmm. Jesus talks to his people who imagine they've been faithful to him, you know. And um, I mean, you know, I think that really religious consciousness has to be disciplined very much around, you know, an awareness of the possibility of self-deception self-flattery. You see so many religious leaders topple, you know, and I think that it's because they may have started out with faith and then they get too much adulation, maybe too much money, and uh, they begin to think they're doing what, under the right circumstances, God is doing through them. And it's, um, it's a frightening thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't have the courage to be a minister. <laughs> I remember when I was a pastor preaching on those passages of I Never Knew Ye and so forth. And afterward, uh, all of the people that maybe I was worried about with presumption would just say, oh, that was a, a great sermon. And everyone who had a sensitive conscience, and <laughs> who was really soft-hearted, would say, I need to make an appointment with you. I, I think there's there's no way that I can really be faithful to Jesus because I have all of these things in my heart. And I would always go home and think, I've completely failed because I've had the opposite effect on everyone that I was intending to have. It, it just really is a difficult thing to, to discern. A favor to the conscientious people. People always need to be more conscientious. <laughs> Marilyn Robinson, thank you uh, for being with me. Uh, You are a blessing to me and to millions of others in ways that you cannot imagine, and I'm honored that you would be with us today. Well, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for listening, and if you uh, swipe, if you're listening on a smartphone, you can tap the cover art or swipe, and you can find uh, resources, including 
how to get a copy of this novel, Jack. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.